Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the most magnificent USA. Today is the 9th of November and the year is still 2020. So um, we have been talking about aging now for I think roughly six weeks and I've been discussing the basic biochemistry and physiology of normal senescence, cellular senescence and uh, organismal senescence. We've done some comparing and contrasting to some animal models. We've talked a lot about genetic components associated with aging. We talked about transcription factors that control chromatin remodeling. We talked about epigenetic profiles, such as methylation, acetylation, microRNA expression. We also started to get into immunology uh, early on. And then throughout, there's always a theme in these uh, lectures. I always bring immunology in because it's such an important system to understand biochemistry in the human in particular. So we're going to go into our transcription factor that we have been talking about. I think the last time I delivered a lecture was um, on the 1st of November. And so I've been preparing this one for some time. I've got three or four lectures actually back to back. I'm going to try to do this week because it took me a while to get them organized. I had to read much more papers and uh, that's where we are right now. So let's get into um, where we are. So again, this is Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry. Now we've been talking about the NIFL3 transcription factor and the fact that there is a coordination associated with how that transcription factor controls gene expression with the immune system and that that's linked to two things that we've been discussing now for five lectures. One is the clock system, that is the biological clock, the chronicity, the day-night cycles that are associated not only with tracking changes in rhythmicity in biochemical systems and in the regulation thereof, but also in the long-term effect of clock activity as a person ages. We talked about melatonin. We talked about its association with the immune system. And we talked about how the clock gene dysregulation was associated with depression and also with uh, corruption of sleep-wake cycles. That's where melatonin came into a discussion. We talked about how melatonin is an endocrine hormone that controls the expression of a lot of genes that are linked to the immune system. And so that should bring you fully up to date. Now, NFL3 and IFL3 is something we talked about, so let's go jump right back into it. Here's a paper that was published in the journal Science in 2017, September, uh, uh, volume 357, and the pages, pages on this journal paper were 912 to 916. What does this paper tell us and why do I bring it in? Well, lots of reasons, as will be obvious soon. So this paper explains, and something that I spent years talking about, is the obesity epidemic. And the fact that there are well over 2 billion people in the world that are overweight or obese. And there's at least 4 million deaths that are attributed to that obesity on a yearly basis. Now that's specifically where you can link obesity to disease. We talk about these diseases. Let's just name two, right? No, we'll name all three that are the main major ones. Cardiovascular heart disease, 
cancer, multiple forms, and metabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes. And they there's a lot of Venn diagram crossover between those three pathophysiologies. And I spent a lot of time talking about that too. But basically, you have a problem with human metabolism and with energy homeostasis. That's at the fundamental biochemical level. Now, this paper is talking about intestinal microbiota. And they're trying to pitch to you that that microbiota that lives in your, particularly in your small intestine, is actually a very important uh, biological factor, biological system that helps sculpt mammalian physiology. Okay. So they are claiming, and this is what you've read, I've read to you a lot in many other papers, but they're 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 a lab that looks at microbiota specifically. So one of their uh, premises is that microbiota promote energy storage and adipose. And they've, they've figured that out because they look at microbiologically germ-free mice and they say, well, gee, germ-free mice have less body fat relative to, let's say, non-germ-free mice. Now that, you see the leap there is tremendous just because a mouse is rendered germ-free, that is, it doesn't have any intestinal microflora. Um, they're recommending that the reason those mice tend to gain weight and particularly get obese, even fed a high fat diet uh, at to a lesser degree than those mice that have normal microflora uh, in their intestine, that that is totally linked then to obesity. I would say that obesity is just one outcome and that it, it is completely unnatural for any mammalian system to be sterile, okay, for the intestine to be sterile. So indeed, the microbiome has always existed in all uh, mammals, in all organisms that have internal organ systems, particularly those associated with digestion. So to try to say that now that we can make relatively sterile or germ-free mice, and that once we make those and we do nutritional studies on them, and we find that they're less prone to obesity when we overfeed them, I think that there's no reason, not just that it's a huge watermark to reach or that it's a great leap of faith. I'd say there's no reason to say those two are linked other than, sure, they're correlated because they see the correlation. But to specifically say that uh, simply having um, bacteria lining the gut um, means that you're, you gain weight uh, and become obese with a high-fat diet, and without that, you don't, uh, it has absolutely no sense because there's no control for this experiment because all mammals naturally have microflora. So I don't like that argument. And it's not just I don't like it because I'm a lipid biochemist and a lot of lipid biochemistry is done kind of like um, off the cuff. A lot of people that think they're studying lipid metabolism aren't. They tend to be geneticists. No put down geneticists, but that's just the way it is. Particularly medical doctors, they, do, they like doing nutritional studies. They like poking at lipoprotein metabolism, and usually they are woefully uh, undernourished in the literature to be doing those kinds of studies and then claiming that they understand lip lipid metabolism, because they clearly don't in most of the studies I've looked at, and I've looked at, um, without exaggeration, tens of thousands of them over the years. So, but they say that microbiota enhance the harvest of high energetic biofuels. 
And clearly that you can demonstrate that. Of course, any digestion of any fuel should be at a relatively high efficiency. And whether or not the microbiota evolved with the internal intestinal system, internal digestive system of mammals, um, coherently with the evolution of the mammal or subsequent to some of that organ development, um, I think, again, is rather a moot point and a rather absurd question um, full of perfidy because obviously we can't claim that we would know whether or not intestinal systems evolve a certain way without particularly bacterial microflora because we always know the bacteria were there in the environment. That much we know about the ancient past. So to suggest that there never were microbiota or that it took a long time for colonization is just another bit of hubris that a lot of these microbiome people tend to throw at you. And I'm not saying that they're building their science on it. I'm just saying that it's the kind of conceptual framework that isn't very logical. In fact, it's not logical at all. And you know how I am. I want to use logic front and center as a prolegomena to be able to start studying any scientific, any scientific level, um, biochemical and physiological and genetic components of the human. So saying that microbiota are involved in uh, uh, efficient uptake of ma macronutrients is of course the case. And they're saying, well, maybe that's why there's a link to adipose tissue, okay? Uh, again, the argument is not very, uh, it doesn't obtain very well for me. It's obvious that there's been a coevolution of having uh, bacterial systems in the digestive system. So they go on to say that many host metabolic pathways are synchronized with day night like cycles. We already know that. That's the circadian clock. Uh, I've been talking about it extensively for the last five lectures. And they tell you the mammalian circadian clock is a network of transcription factors, which is we've gotten into. It's in all cells of the body. Um, that's not quite true. It's not in the red blood cells, for example, at least not mature red blood cells. And they say that this rhythmicity um, drives the oscillation of gene expression. And of course, you could say the gene expression drives the uh, manifestation of what looks like a chronicity. So I don't, again, I don't like the way that the logic is being suggested here because we don't have any real way of knowing one way or the other. And again, the chronicity is, is not really a direct synchronization. There are a lot of um, gray areas and there's a lot of um, plasticity and elasticity in the clock, especially as you age, right? Which is also part of a clock system. But that clock system is open-ended until you die. So again, they're saying there's some kind of synchronization with metabolism. And they're saying the clock may couple um, energetically expensive metabolic pathways and that it's associated with dietary uh, uptake of macronutrients. And they're saying that maybe these microbiome, um, the, the bacteria that live within the microbiome in the gut optimize energy utilization. Again, there's no evidence for that because we don't know what it would be without the, the microbiota. And even when you take sterile mice and you add back microbiota, it's a completely artificial system. Okay, you know about biofilms, which because we talked a lot about it in lecture over the years. I spent a lot of time talking about that when I taught in the dental school uh, about the biofilm, for example, in the oral cavity. 
but also elsewhere in the body when I talked when I talked pathophysiology uh, in the pharmacy uh, school and also in the nursing school and the medical school. So we're not going to get into all of that, but it's a whole other tremendously large um, uh, lec lecture fodder, right? So they're saying in this paper published 2017 that they don't really know the mechanisms involved in microbiota interacting with the circadian clock, and that's what they want to do. Okay, so so far, you see that I argue a little bit about their logic. Um, I think sometimes they put the cart before the horse, and sometimes the horse before the cart, and sometimes there is no axle between the horse's harness and the cart, and yet they still put one there, or they imagine one there. So with all those caveats, let's get into more of the meat of the paper now, shall we? All right, so... Right away, they talk about infill three. Now, remember, that's a transcription factor. I spent a lot of time on it. I'm not going to go into the details about it right now. For the T cells, you'll hear, hear about this soon. But infill three controls immune function. And we know the function varies by cell type. That is, acquired versus innate immune cells, even between innate cells, like, say, dendritic versus macrophages versus neutrophils. And certainly with the acquired immune, lymphatic system, T cells of various flavors, and also B cells or plasma cells. There's a great deal of differential uh, either expression or very low expression of infills, of infill 3, that transcription factor, and that that actually re um, was responsible for giving us T reg phenotype versus T effector phenotype. And I spent a lot of time on that recently, too. We're, we're going to touch right, we're going to dip right back into that pond soon. So just hold on. So it looks like expression is markedly reduced in, in this paper in germ-free mice. And they're suggesting that epithelially expressed in fill 3 this is not in the immune cells, but in epithelia, could regulate the physiological activity. And they're saying that that may be responsive to intestinal microbiota. Now, they have a lot of evidence um, front-loaded already why they think this is happening because it's in the, in the literature. They're not just saying, oh, this one transcription factor is there and so it must be associated, but they are in some ways hand-waving because they have a knockout. So they generated an epithelial cell-specific infill-3 knockout. Um, it's just called infill-3 delta IEC for, for, for reasons you'll, you'll understand in a moment. Anyways, this knockout is raised on a chow diet fed less than half their normal litter mates and, and what they found had, and had a reduced body fat and increased lean body mass relative to the normal Enville littermates. Now, as a control, they actually threw the vector into these into this uh, mouse line, and they called them Enville3FL slash FL. That means they're flocks, so the genus floxed. That means that they can induce the knockout in this transgenic animal. Now, why is that important? Because you have a transgenic animal, so right away you may change phenotype. See, because it's my random integration, for example, into anywhere in the genome. So that's a good control. I'm glad they did that. But again, I told you these people are geneticists. Geneticists do good controls in genetics, not so much in biochemistry. Now, here's where they make this big leap where they think they're lipid biochemists. They say when placed on a high-fat diet uh, or a Western-style diet, now that, again, is kind of funny because there are plenty of third-world countries where there's a real high-fat diet, I don't know where they get that information. I think maybe from newspapers or something. But let's just call it HFD, high-fat diet. They put this mice on for 10 weeks. They had the infill 
flox flox, and they had the infill deltas, okay, which means the, the gene has been deleted. Uh, and they gained weight, but the infill delta IECs, remember, the, again, these are these epithelial cells, right? That's exactly what we're talking, ep epithelial uh, cells which have as an expression system the expression of infill 3 as being controlled by um, deletion of the gene because you've thrown the gene in by for it being floxed, which means that it's controlled by uh, a LOXP Cree system, which is, allows you to um, transactivate a deletion of a gene in an animal. Okay? There are lots of different methods that you can do this with. We used um, the flipper combinase. These people have uh, chosen to use a LOXP3. Uh, anyway, okay, anyways, the infill 3 delta IECs also had lower epidendromal fat pad weights. That's typically what's measured for uh, a, an indicator for obesity in uh, uh, lab, lab mice and rats. And they also say that this, uh, this uh, line, which where they removed the infill 3 and the epithelial cells, were protected from elevated blood triacylglycerol. They say the liver fat accumulation didn't occur. They say that there wasn't a lowered glucose tolerance. And they say there was not an insulin resistance. So they're all over the map here telling you about what? Type 2 diabetes, obviously the last three or four, and also metabolic syndrome. Okay. Now, they tell you that 16S ribosomal RNA sequencing of fecal microbiota indicated the metabolic differences between the transgenic still expressing the infill 3, the flux transgenic, as compared to the knockout mouse, were not due to differences in taxonomy of the microbiota. And that suggests that the epithelial infill 3 regulates lipid storage and body composition in mice. Now, again, I don't know where they can make that huge leap because they're saying, well, it's not associated with taxonomic composition, which means it's not a change in bacterial species um, in, in terms of, I guess, biofilm associated with the small intestine. And then they go on and say, yeah, but still this epithelial expression does obviously regulate lipid metabolism uh, and body composition because of those, uh, the, the fat pad, the epidemiological fat pad, uh, and also the lowering of uh, blood triacylglycerol, the liver fat accumulation. So hepatosteatosis was decreased in these animals. But I in no way see that they've even demonstrated that the microbiota, just because they looked at 16S ribosomal RNA, because as you know, even with 16S ribosomal RNA, you're only looking across broad-based taxonomic categorization of microbiota, right? It doesn't mean that you don't have various um, pathovars of those bacteria that are living there or as symbionts and minor variations in gene expression has a lot to do with biofilm aggregation. And they're not claiming they did anything like that, which means that you may have this identical composition of bacteria at the 16S ribosomal RNA level, but it doesn't mean they're all expressing the same genetic systems when the biofilm is different. That is an important thing I learned when I was teaching uh, molecular microbiology, dental me molecular microbiology. Now, let's continue on here. Intestinal epithelial cells, those are again the IECs we've been talking about, they're claiming it senses the microbiota through TLRs, those are toll-like receptors. And they're saying, and we know, they're, and they're just agreeing with the literature, that the next signal after TLR stimulation is the adapter molecule called MID88, which we talked about a great deal in the past, a 
again, go back and listen to the earlier lecture. We're talking about toll-like receptors. Now, they're saying, okay, you got toll-like receptors, you got mid-88, and we know that mid-88 is transcription factor regulating expression of a lot of genes. Now, they introduce a new term here for our lectures. It's called Zeitgeber time, or ZT. And they say that Zeitgeber time is when Zeitgeber time four, there's four, there's, there's four segments of ZT time. Don't worry, I'm going to explain that in a moment, what that is, is when the infill expression is near peak in conventional mice. It means right before waking, right before waking, that's what ZT4 is. Now, what is Zeitgeber time? It's a unit of time based on basically the period of a Zeitgeber, which is a 12-hour day, 12-hour night cycle. So by convention, in free-running constant conditions, the onset of activity of day-active organisms is the circadian time zero, right? And the onset of activity of night-active organisms is going to be a circadian time of 12 hours. That's halfway through the ZT, okay? So the Zeitgeber word itself actually is, comes from time giver, okay? That's what the translation is from the German. And it refers to an environmental variable that's capable of acting at circadian time hewing event ontologies. Okay? So it's an environmental variable that's capable of acting at circadian time hue intervals. Okay? So the light dart cycle is the most important zeitgeber. But there are other stimuli, and we've mentioned them. How about melatonin? So melatonin is actually functioning as a Zeitgeber or Zeitgeber. And the ZT is that temporal relationship, the T effort, obviously, of a circadian rhythm linked to either changing the light or looking at melatonin concentrations, or here looking at the um, transcription factor, right? Infill three. Okay. Now, recall from previous lectures that the epithelial Reb herb alpha expression. When it's increased, infill expression is consequently reduced. We talked about this at great length in T cells. And, we, and they saw this in germ, to germ-free levels in mid-88 minus mice. And that indicated to them that microbiota regulation of the Rev-Herb-Alpha infill-3 cascade, of course, requires mid-88. See how they're linking toll-like receptor, which you know toll-like receptors react to antigens from bacteria. And now they're saying that they're able to, when they when they have a knockout mid-88, they don't get this regulated Reb Herb Alpha infill three expression pattern. Okay. So they go on to say epithelial mid-88 was dispensable for microbiota induced alterations in Reb Herb Alpha and in infill three expression independently. Okay. So but they're looking at the interaction, not independent expression. But they're saying, well, what follows from that is mid-88 expression in a CD11 CD cell population, which of course will also have some dendritic cells in it, is required for maximal expression of the Reb-Herb-Alpha induction of the infill 3. And that suggests to them there is a requirement for dendritic cells. Okay, so now we're bringing in not just the epithelial cell lineage, but the dendritic cells that live within the um, small intestine epithelial lining. Okay, 
So DC depletion, in, in which a diphtheria toxin receptor, DTR, is expressed under the control of a CD11C promoter, is how they did DC depletion. Because obviously, if you express diphtheria toxin receptor uh, and you throw in diphtheria toxin, you kill DC cells, right? It's called negative selection. Now, on the administration of a toxin, it's called DT, the CD11 positive cells, remember, these are, these are um, the surrogate, right? for these dendritic cells, because the CD11C are a component of that population are dendritic cells. They're saying administration of thyrotoxin to DCs, which are expressing the thyrotoxin receptor, are selectively killed. And so on CD11 cell depletion, when they kill those, reb herb alpha expression was increased, and infill 3 expression was, of course, decreased. That then they now linked in the fact that dendritic cells are playing a role with the microbiota. Remember, they're claiming the microbiota is involved because it's going all the way back to mid-88 and the toll-like receptor. So they're saying there's a requirement for dendritic cells um, associated with that microbiota, micro, the biofilm, and that that's involved in infill. Remember, whenever you see Reb, Herb, Alpha go up, Right? That means that you're getting a dropping of the dendritic cells in that intestinal system, in the epithelial cell system. And that whenever reb, reb herb alpha goes up because of the depletion of the dendritic cells, the epithelial cells then get reb herb alpha expressed because they're normally regulated, remember, by the mid-88 toll-like receptor. They see that that gets, that gets increased. The expression of that transcription factor gets increased. And with that, of course, that knocks off the normal um, uh, ROAR uh, uh, transcription factors, which would allow for infill 3 expression. So that's what they're recommending. And again, this should be really obvious to you where I just gave you now three different ways if you've been following along in the earlier lectures, because we've been talking a great deal about the regulation of the clock genes and about how REB, um, herb, uh, alpha and herb beta control the expression of other transcription factors, which then go on to regulate the clock genes, right? Remember, enthyl 3 is normally a suppressor. In order to have a clock, you have to have a diminishment of the expression of a lot of other genes. That's what infill does. That's what that's the role it plays there, of course. Okay, so I'm going to mention a few more things. I'm going to stop here. Bacteria activate the toll-like receptor mid-88, as I said. That signals in dendritic cells, and the bacterial signals are relayed from the dendritic cell to group three innate lymphoid cells. Those are ILC3s. We talked about those before. Don't be worried. And it does so through cytokine and leukin 23, right? So, when we talked about that too. So, we're all I'm doing is putting the puzzle pieces together for you now. So, ILC3 then signals to the epithelium through the production now, or subsequently of interleukin-22, okay? Now, that's going to become really important when we introduce yet another genetic variant, okay? We're going to now introduce an ID2-deficient mouse, okay? And that's, again, that's one that's going to be regulated by, by uh, removing, delimiting that gene in transgenic mice by using a recombinase system. Okay. And they're going to tell you that ID2 deficient mice using that system, that induction system, lack all known ILC subsets. 
Okay, so that means remember those those IL, ILCs. Remember those are the innate lymphoid cells now. So you're looking at innate lymphoid cells, not just at their dendritic cells. Now you're looking at innate lymphoid cells because they're also expressing, of course, in 3 and it showed an increased Reb herb alpha expression and a consequent decrease in fil three expression in the small intestinal epithelium. So this is another indication that there are immune cells associated with the system. So you have dendritic cells, and now we're talking about the really important innate lymphoid cells. In this term, in this particular time, we're talking ILC subclass three. All right. So we're going to stop there because we're getting close to the end of the time where we can be together because I have this half hour time signature on my uh, um, anchor. Uh, um, thinking about increasing that, and when I do, you'll know about it. But I think a half hour is pretty good because you can keep your attention span really good for that. Uh, sometimes when we go beyond it, we do a lot of these um, deep dives into systems. I think um, I might be uh, more or less talking to myself, which we don't want to do because it's a podcast. Okay, so this is Dr. Dan Guerra. Very enthusiastic about us finally getting back into immunity um, as it relates to the aging process. Don't worry, we're linking this back up because remember, it's about circadian clock and infill 3. It's totally linked up with circadian clock and melatonin and aging, right? We talked about that before. So this is Dr. Dan Guerra on the, again, 9th of November, 2020, saying bye for now.